Well, I was thinking tonight that we would be looking at some of the uh, general lists that were going on, and I forgot that David was in the in the list, so we'll spend a little bit of time on David, and he's a good comparison with Samson, so we'll take a look at the comparisons there. So we'll actually be looking at the both of them, Samson and David, but most of our time will be spent on David tonight. Hebrews eleven thirty two. I want to pull that up on the screen. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. Verse 33. I didn't write it in my, my outline this time. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions. Well, we see that the, a list is then given of different things that they had performed and it's, he's not necessarily drawing the conclusions as to which ones they are, so we will try and draw those conclusions for you. But here in David, as we look at David, it would seem that David's faith is linked to those who through faith subdued kingdoms. That would be the, the one that I would think that he is, he is on. This would point to the most probable target of his, of his faith being in military victories. We know that this was a calling and an anointing that David had was for military victories. That was sort of a calling and anointing that came on uh, most kings, except for Solomon. Solomon didn't have to conquer, and he was supposed to be a king for a time of peace. But we see with David that he started small. Lions and bears. Maybe even started smaller than that before. But um, we come in the scene, and we hear about lions and bears. He moved up to a giant. Missed the word two in there in your outline, but uh, you can fill that in. But he moved up to a giant, one who put fear into the entire army, except him. He had no fear. Well, that's because he, he fought some of these things before, and he got his faith up to a level. I think I mentioned this to you when we went through the life of David before, or somewhere in there we, we had gotten into it. But one of my favorite quotes on this was that if there are lions and bears in your present, it may be because there are giants in your future. As, that's one of my one of my favorite ones. Anyway, uh, he then moved up to thousands, where he was slaughtering thousands, and then he moved up to tens of thousands. Now we're not told of the thousands, but in order to get to tens of thousands, you kind of hit have to hit hundreds, and then thousands, and then tens of thousands. But the uh, the ladies, when they sang their song, ascribed to him tens of thousands and to Saul thousands. So he moved up from one giant to thousands and then tens of thousands of the enemy. That's certainly moving up. And then we come to Second Samuel chapter 8. And here we have in verse 1, After this it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. This is while he was king. And David took Metheg, Amah, from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab. Forcing them down to the ground, he measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death and one full line, those to be kept alive. Seems like he divided them into thirds and then one thirty let live, let live. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. He went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot 
horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. They were told by God not to multiply horses for chariots. And so he caught, now he didn't kill them. So that means when he hamstrung them, it means he, he cut them in such a way that they would not be any good to be chariot uh, horses anymore. But he, he kept a hundred of them around. So I'm not sure if he thought that wasn't multiplying, that was just keeping some, whatever it was. We don't ever hear that he was rebuked by that by God. But he had a hundred of them. Also David hamstrung all, we did that one, verse uh, 5. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. The Lord preserved David wherever he went, and he took shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem, also from Batah and from Barotai, cities of Hadadezer. King David took a large amount of bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, then Toi sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him, bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been at war with Toi. At Joram, I'm sorry, and Joram brought with him articles of silver and articles of gold and articles of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. I don't know, I kind of thought he would have made a name before that. <laughs> he also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Now, uh, some translations read that differently, and I'm not sure why they, they said this, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went, because that word means does mean preserve. But it also means victorious. Now, in the context of this, how would you interpret that? Preserve? Or victorious. <laughs> I mean, it's listing all his victories. Not that he was preserved, but that he was victorious. I would think that would have been a better way to go. And some translations have done it that way. So if you see some translations that that uh, list it more as that uh, the Lord gave David victories, uh, I, I would certainly concur with that. The New Century Version is one that does put it that way. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. So as he's pursuing his call as the victor, it lists the kingdoms that David conquered. To the west, we have the Philistines. In the table of nations, the Philistines come under Ham. Under the patriarchs, their relationship was civil. So when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were in the land, uh, they got along okay with the Philistines. We don't see that there was any war or any problems with the Philistines. They, uh, they kind of got along okay. But when Israel returned from Egypt as as a nation and they came in and took over the place well now there's hostilities and now the Philistines don't like them and there's war between them so before when you had just had the patriarchs not so much war not so much trouble they were they were civil there but uh, not when Israel returned because they saw them as a threat to the east were the Moabites and the Ammonites they lived respectively east of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River also the Amalekites were there they were Esau's descendants uh, they settled north of Kadesh Barnea in the Negev, 
desert and were Israel's enemies as early as the days of the wandering in the Sinai desert. Now the struggle with the Amalekites culminated with the Amalekites raiding the Negev and the and Ziglag. If you remember those stories, they held captive all the women and children, carried them off. Uh, some of David's wives, two of them, were taken in there. That was from First Samuel chapter thirty. So they went out there and battled them. The Amalekites gradually disappeared from the biblical narrative. We don't see them anymore in the Bible. We don't hear them talked about anymore. Um, after this, they pretty much just kind of fade off the scene. But the others, the other two, still are there. Now these three surrounding tribes, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and the Moabites, they um, they were used by God to turn Israel around each time they did evil. So each time they went off in an evil place, it was either the Moabites who came up and they persecuted under Gideon, of course we saw that, and others. These were used in that way. Um, now they were still raiding towns. Even during the time of David, they would come up and raid towns. But David pretty much put a stop to that, defeated all, all of them. And that was, um, that was going on. With the Ammonites, after, uh, there was a particular incident in the Bible where they had humiliated some of David's delegates. And David got very mad at that and came in and um, taught them a lesson, basically. <laughs> so that they were uh, not as much of a problem then. <clears throat> uh, to the north was Aram. There were three Armenian kingdoms mentioned during the reign of Saul and David's reign. Damascus, Beth, Rahab, and Zobah. The Ar- no, I don't know how to pronounce this. Aram is how the thing is, but when you when you turn it into the Arameans, it seems like the A ought to change because that's just the way English is. One reason I don't like the language in Greek that wouldn't be that way. Uh, there's only one way to pronounce a word. I, I kind of like that, but uh, either the Arameans or the Arameans, however you want to say that, <laughs> they antagonized David in the alliance with each other, and. Um, and, and so forth, but they, uh, they of course lost in 1st Samuel 8, describes some of those, those battles. 2nd Samuel 10 also talks about that. And, um, then we have the final nation. This, the south was Edom. These were also descended from Esau. And they were one of the ones that refused Israel passage through. But, uh, David set up garrisons in there. He defeated them. Of course, you have to, win a battle before you set up garrisons but then after he won the battles he set up garrisons in there and and he took care of those now beside this this is one area that we know David's faith was was strong in in the area of being victorious and he continually grew stronger in here and he went from just uh, slaying thousands and tens of thousands to subduing entire nations and he subdued everything from the north of Israel south east and west in fact the area that David conquered is the area that was promised to Abraham from the uh, the, the uh, sea, which is on the uh, west of, of Israel, to the Euphrates River. Now, they do not possess the land. And God promised Abraham they would possess it. They did not possess it. But he controlled it. They all paid tribute to him and, and so forth. But that's the only time in Israel's history that they possessed all of that land. From that point on, after uh, Solomon... He, of course, reigned in peace, but after he went away, Rehoboam took over, and, and one by one, they all began to rebel and pull back from that, and they weren't having any income coming from those those places either. But that was the time that they they reigned the mace. So 
So take a look at all those lands that are and the people that are there now. From the uh, the sea all the way out to the Euphrates River. That's the area that was Israel's during the time of David. But beside that, we also see that he had faith in following his spirit instead of just the law. Jesus even makes mention of this back in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 3. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. So David comes and he breaks the law and Jesus brags about it. Now, most people who break the law, he didn't brag about it. But David did it in faith because David knew the heart of God and he knew the law. And he understood in the heart of God, he would have us eat what we can so that we're strong for the battle. And so in this situation, it's okay for us to eat the showbread. He understood God and was able to, to come to that. He didn't come to it and said, well, I'm just going to disregard the law of God. He came to, a, uh, to not do what the law said because he understood the heart of God. The Word of God speaks about how we, how we understood, how we used the friend of God. In another area of faith, we see that in the areas of prophecy, you can't just prophesy things without being in faith because you're speaking things that are not as though they were. And I did, the, did a little search. I said, you know, how many prophecies did David make? Because I wasn't going to go through and count them all. I was working on other stuff. No, so I'm going to do that. And I'll bet if you opened up Dakes, and I didn't take time to open up Dakes. You know, Dakes would all probably, maybe he would say, this is prophecy number 145. <laughs> but I didn't remember Dakes doing that with David's prophecies. I, I remember him doing it with questions. But I didn't remember him doing that with David's prophecies, so I didn't really go over there. But I could find no place that anyone has, got, has gone and, and counted. I'm not saying that no one did. I'm saying I didn't come to it. So someone out there, I'm sure, has probably counted all the promises or all the prophetic things that David had, had made. They probably haven't broken them down into categories. Which one's about the Christ and which one's about other things. But, I mean, we, there are quite a few promise, uh, prophecies that David has made about the Christ and quite a few prophecies he's made other, other places as well in the Psalms are, are littered with them. But I don't have a count, so I don't know. But that's, that's part of the faith too. He would hear this that God would say and he would prophesy this about Messiah. He would prophesy this about the things to come. So prophecy, understanding God, and in subduing kingdoms. These are the three areas we see the, the faith of David working in. But the author of Hebrews, it would seem very much he was, his idea would be in the subduing of kingdoms. That would be the direction to go. That would be his focus. Now David continued to increase until all the enemies on either side were defeated. Again, he went from lions and bears to giants to hundreds and thousands and then tens of thousands and then kingdoms. Now if we look at Samson, Samson seems to have had a call very similar to David's. He was called to be a deliverer. I think David, if you want to put a word on it, it was called more to be a victor. But Samson had a call to be a deliverer, which was a call that fell on a lot of the judges. <clears throat> um, 
David brought all the people along with the call to help him to help him accomplish it. Every time you find David, he's out there recruiting people and bringing them along for the cause. When he was out there kicked out of the kingdom, he got 200 men. He got 400 men. Then he got 600 men. He kept growing the, the group of people he had until he had the uh, a good number. And he took those people and he went out and he did things with them. And then after that, he had Israel. At first, he only had the tribe of Judah, Judah and Benjamin. And then he went on and he had all 12 tribes. And so now he's got more of an army. And he would use those armies and the people in them to accomplish what God would, would say to do. And he had good people. He had real good people underneath there. And the Word of God tells us about his uh, his 30 and then the three and um, just phenomenal uh, warriors and people that he raised up in there. They seem to have a call on their life as well. But David was a call to victor. Samson seemed to be a call for a deliverer. But he didn't bring any of the people along. So it seems that what Samson did, he did on his own. He's always out there on his own. We don't know what happened while he was growing in the favor of God because the Word of God doesn't give us any history on that. We only have what happened when he was being selfish and doing things that Samson wanted to do. But every time we have him going out, he's going out by himself. He's doing great exploits, but he's going out by himself. He's never out with other people. He doesn't bring anybody along to the battle with him. It's always just him. And that never seems to change. That may have brought along uh, with it, caused him to fall into a mentality of being a superman. I'm I'm good enough by myself. I don't need anybody. I'm good enough by, by myself. And this could be what caused him to get into such a selfish view. Don't know that that's, that's what it was, but it's just uh, something that I would kind of think about. So he pursued his, his call as a deliverer for a time, but then other things got in the way. He began to pursue other things. He began to pursue Philistine women. He began to pursue honor. He began to pursue money. He began to pursue other things than just the call that, that God had, had on his life. David pursued the call and money came. And along with a lot of other things, glory came and people recognized him and so forth. But he didn't pursue that. He pursued the call that God had on his life. Now David got off on that call just like Samson did. But he was quicker quicker to repent. Samson not so much. Now Samson, beside having the call for a deliverer, we see that he also disregarded the law at times. But he did it. Uh, Instead of understanding the heart of God, he just disregarded the law. I just don't need to do it. I know that that the Word of God says with a Nazarite vow, I'm supposed to abstain from from wine. But he's always hanging out in the vineyards. <laughs> and uh, he, there's there's uh, several things that were listed that he was supposed to stay away from. And the only thing he stayed away from was getting his hair cut. That was it. And that seemed to be working. So, you know, I guess he's still out there doing the other stuff, touching dead carcasses and um, probably drinking wine and just having a good old time because it didn't seem to be bothering him, but he was protective about his hair. But he was slow to repent. Other people brought it to his attention. Why are you pursuing the Philistine women? Why are you pursuing these other things? Why are you going after these uh, directions? He didn't care about that. He wasn't about to, re- to repent from those things. If we look over at Judges chapter 16, verse 27, this is the end of his life. Now the temple was full of men and women All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching while Samson performed. 
they were having him do things in the temple just so they could mock him and uh, because his strength had gone from him. And so they were bringing his great enemy in and they were all having, having kind of fun with him. Then Samson called to the Lord saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray, strengthen me, I pray just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines. That would have been good if he would have just stopped there. <clears throat> That's where he should have just ended. I want to take vengeance on the Philistines, I'm going to fulfill my call. But he didn't. For my two eyes. So we're still in that selfish part there. But God still honored it. And he got his strength back. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple. And he braced himself against them, one on his right and the other on his left. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Now, if you want to look at the the faith of Samson here, he has not had strength yet. But he pronounced this, this, he pronounces this to the people that are there. Let me die with the Philistines. He expects this to work. He expects that God to come through. God did, but that was a faith statement on his part. Because it had not worked up till now. He has lost his strength. So he puts his hand on the pillars and he makes this statement and then he pushes with all his might and the temple fell on the Lord's all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he killed in his life. So 3,000 people he killed in his death is more than he killed in his life which means he does not kill 6,000 people. That's not going to make a great dent in the enemy. Gideon did more than that. A little frail little Gideon. <laughs> Saw himself as the weakest of the weakest of the families, of the weakest of the tribes. That's according to how he saw it. He killed more in one day than Samson did in his whole life. David killed more than Samson did in his whole life. Because they, they pursued something different. But Samson pursued other things. So the anointing that was on him was meant for a lot more than 6,000 Philistines. But that's all that he, he did. But still, he made it in. If I was writing Hebrews, I'd skip right over Samson. There's just no reason mentioning him. But uh, I didn't write Hebrews. So we look at the things that were associated. We go back to pull up Hebrews chapter 11. Pull up uh, 33 and 34 we'll look at. Who through faith subdued kingdoms. Well, Samson did not subdue kingdoms. He didn't even subdue the one kingdom that he was uh, targeting, the Philistines. Uh, work righteousness. Well, we know that's not even, that's not in there. Obtain promises. He didn't obtain any promise, did he? Stop the mouth of lions. He killed one, yeah, but so did David. And there was a, one of David's men also killed a lion. Let's go on to the next one. Quench, uh, quench the violence of fire. Mm, he did start a fire. He did not stop a fire. We have other people who uh, who had done that. Escape the edge of the sword. We don't have anything about him escaping the edge of a sword. He did get out of the city when they were out to get him, uh, picking up the gates and so forth, but that doesn't quite seem to be the 
the thing. Out of weakness were made strong. Well, see, I think that's where he's at. Because he was made weak because he lost the anointing. And out of that weakness part, he was made strong. So if I'm going to say what the writer of Hebrews has in mind is the end of his life. When out of weakness, he was made strong. That would seem to be the, the indicator there. But uh, go down a few more verses over to verse 39. Hebrews 11, verse 39. We still have a number of different things that are still here in this list that we're going to have to, to take a look at. But look at how he sums up here in verse 39. And all these, the ones he, he just listed, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. And all these, all the ones in the list, and we're just looking at the ones that we've covered so far, but he's, he's got some more he's gonna, gonna list, and pretty soon we're gonna just drop names, we're just gonna, uh, list things that they did. But all these, so of all the ones he's, he's listed, either all of them in the chapter, or all of them, as he's making this, uh, this summary here at the end, and all these having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. So I put this in your outline here for you. It would seem that our good testimony is built not on receiving the promise. How many times do we think that our testimony is built on receiving the promise? That the world needs to see that first off I'm healed. And we think that if the world sees that I haven't gotten healed from a particular thing, they're going to think that um, my testimony is no good. If they don't see that I'm delivered from a financial problem, they're going to think I'm no good. And my testimony won't be any, 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 uh, good. If something doesn't go on with my, with my kids or my family that I think ought to go on, then I'm going to think that people are going to look at me and say, I'm no good. Because we're looking at the end result. We're looking at obtaining the promise. But he's saying right here, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. Hmm. So how did they obtain a good testimony? So I wrote this down in your outline for you. It would seem that our good testimony is built not on the receiving of the promise. And the promise there is singular. But in the pursuit of it. And we can go all the way back to Abraham. He didn't receive the promise. Word of God even talked about that. He died before receiving the promise of... um, his offspring being multiplied and so forth. And uh, Isaac, he died before seeing that promise. Jacob, he died before seeing that promise. They hadn't seen it. And that kept on going. Joseph, he didn't see that promise come about. They were still waiting for that, that going on. They still had not seen the promise. And though by the time of Moses, we think the promise is the uh, multiplication of Abraham's descendants. Well, that would, uh, during Moses' time, he certainly saw that because the descendants then were, were like descended to see. There's a lot of them. They were all over. They did not receive the promise. So the promise may not be what we're looking at was for Abraham's life as far as the uh, fulfillment of coming into the land Though at one point it looked like that's that's what he was talking about with uh, Abraham in particular. But the promise might be the promise. The coming of Messiah. 
that they hadn't received it. And as we're going to look into the book of Hebrews, we're going to find out that the book of Hebrews is doing a whole lot of comparison. Here is the Old Testament saints. Now we're in the New Testament. Here's the difference. They didn't have Christ. Christ has come. That's the big difference. They hadn't received the promise. But they had a testimony all the way up until then. And what was important is how they conducted themselves in this life, waiting for and obtaining the promise. Now, we've already received Christ, but there are still some promises out there that uh, we're looking to to obtain. A lot of times we focus on the ones that affect us in this life. But let the world see how you are operating in obtaining the promises of the life to come. That that should be our main focus. Our our main thing to, to be looking at. What is the promise of the time to come? Because we got some good things coming up. We're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. That's a good promise. I look forward to that. Living in this world. No longer human people. Messing things up. We're going to have God the, Fa- God the Father out there. He's He's... He's helping us, but Jesus Christ is the one who comes down here on this earth and He is ruling and reigning. And then we're in there ruling and reigning with Him. And He doesn't need any parliament. He doesn't need Congress. He doesn't need a Supreme Court. He doesn't need any of those things because His judgments are true. And we're going to be here supporting that. When we, when we live this life, don't get your, your sights focused on just the promises for health, for money, for all the different things. Those are good promises and pursue them. But our testimony to the world is how we pursue the things that are to come. Do we get all caught up with all the things that are going on in this world? Don't need to. Sometimes we we live in here and, well, I like this president and don't like this president. Things are good because I like this president. Things are bad because I don't like this president. I don't like what Congress is doing. I don't like different laws that are being passed. Oh, I like these laws. We'll get caught up in that. And, um, you know, we can be involved. We can be looking at these things. But, boy, I tell you what, don't let your world be revolving around that. Because our ruler is still to come. And I look back on history, and I see the rulers that Paul was under. They were worse than the ones we have. They, they were bad. Things they did to Christians. It was, uh, I mean, I, I hear the stories not just in the Colosseum and not just the lions coming out and, and tearing Christians apart. But, uh, Nero used to light the, the streets with burning Christians. We've never lived in anything like that. Can you imagine that kind of, that kind of thing going on? I could not. Put this in your outline for you. Mistakes are made by all on the list. But we keep being pointed to how they finished. We're pointed as to how they finished. How did the people finish their race? How are we finishing our race? How are we conducting ourselves along the way? What is our focus? What is our, uh, what is our testimony that we leave behind? And when I got I jumped here ahead of the list just so you would see this. Of all the things that he's talking about and all their acts and all the things that they had done and 
the things with the fire and the things with the lions and the things with the enemies and all the different stuff that was that has gone on. Their testimony and how they finished. That's important. Pull that verse back up again. And all these having obtained a good testimony through faith. It's through faith. And faith is in the confidence of things that are said to be on the way but are not here yet. That's what the faith is. We have a promise, something that's coming, that's not here yet. Having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. How many Christians do you hear? Their faith and their testimony is based on whether they received. We heard Christians say, well, I didn't get this. Well, God didn't do this for me. I'll tell you what, that's not how we, we're supposed to be living, not how we're supposed to be walking, and it shouldn't be coming out of our mouth. Came out of Abraham's mouth for a little while, but he eventually got past that. And even to the point where he didn't see the results, but he still believed them. And they had faith in the promise, which I think is the coming of Jesus Christ, Messiah. And the changes that he would do, the things that he would bring about. And all these have been obtained. They obtained a good testimony. They obtained a good... We're looking at obtaining the promise. But the writer of Hebrews put these people in here because each of these has obtained a good testimony. What's more important than you obtaining the promise is that you obtain a good testimony. That the people that are around us, the people that watch us, the people that observe all the things that we say and all the things that we do, those people, that's who we live in our testimony with. How do they see us act? How do they see us act when we're under pressure? How do they see us act when things in the country don't go the way we want? When things in the news media are stirring people up? How do they see us act? How do they see us react? Are we leaving a good testimony? And that's what he ends up focusing on here. So we skip to the end of the chapter, just kind of <laughs> jump it on, jump it on ahead. So we're looking at it for ourselves. What kind of testimony? Are we leaving with people? Do people think that I am more concerned about the promise or that I'm more concerned about what we obtain here in this life and what's going on here? Do they see someone who the things, the events of the world that these events can throw me, that they can get me rattled, that they can get me upset or do they see somebody who walks in this life in peace not bothered by not, I mean, we, we're mindful, but not bothered. And we just keep on going. Because our kingdom and our king, not of this world. We talked about in times past, and just remind you on this, this sort of stuff, the people who all want to say that, you know, these acts of God, this hurricane that came through in, in uh, Florida and destroyed all these things, and, um, you know, that God had a purpose and God had a, had all this babies who die God had a purpose and God had a reason children who come to an end before they should or come come sick with something well God had a purpose and they come up with all these these different things and all these explanations and so forth 
But we look, go back to the words of Jesus, and Jesus said, in one of the ways he taught us to pray, he said, Thy will be done, or on earth, as it is in heaven. How many hurricanes do they have in heaven? <clears throat> How many children die in heaven? How much sickness and disease is in heaven? So it would seem that these things that we attribute, not us, but other people, attribute as acts of God down here on earth don't go on in heaven. The place where He controls, where His will is done, these things aren't happening. But down here, they are. Because they are not the will of God. But the God of this world, they are His will. How do we conduct ourselves in a kingdom that is not ruled yet by Jesus Christ but will be one day but we still can bring in the will of God into this world just as Jesus did Jesus didn't overthrow anybody didn't have to overthrow the kings didn't have to deal with the police or the soldiers or any of that he let them all go off and do their things even when he was asked the question about it should we pay taxes? No, give me a give me a coin. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. There are some things that are the peoples of this world. But there are other things that are the things of God. Our focus needs to be on the things of God. And that's our, how we leave our testimony down here on the earth. Number one thing we should be focused on is not the promises we obtain, but the testimony that we leave. And that we do by how we respond, how we react, how we speak of, even how we think of all the things that are going on around us, how all the people carry on and do the things that they do. How are we going to respond? How are we going to go? One of the best examples I had in my life was, uh, was my grandfather who would uh, envision this, he um, he would sit and he would watch people. He would watch people do the craziest, craziest things. He was not one who could, who could walk very well. By the time I knew him, he was kind of stumbling. He would still get up on ladders and still get around with his, with his crutches and so forth, but he was just happy just parking out and, and watching people. If we went up on the boardwalk, he just, we would just leave him in one of those spots. You don't know... If you've been in Ocean City Boardwalk, they got all these park benches. And we'd, he'd find one and we'd sit him there. And when we would pick him up, he would tell us all the crazy stories <laughs> that people had done. Never once did he talk about people and put them down. But he would talk about the story and he would see the humor in it. And he'd be laughing as he's telling the story. Just laughing at how they reacted and just thinking it was so funny. Not laughing at them. He just thought it was funny how how they were going through life and what they were doing. Just enjoying himself and he just had a good old time. And every day, if you talk to him, he would tell you about some fun things that happened in, in life and he would see the humor of all this. But what a testimony he left behind because of all the things he faced and all the battles he faced and all the things that came against him. Never got soured to God and said, well, why has God caused all these things? He just looked out at people and he enjoyed watching whatever he saw. Always saw the fun, always saw the humor.
and left a good testimony for us in that way. What is the testimony that we leave? Do people think we're more concerned about the things going on in the world or more concerned about the things going on with God? Are we more concerned about the things going on in this present life or are we more focused on the things that are to come? For the people in the Old Testament, they had the promise of Jesus Christ coming. For us in the New Testament, we have the promise of Jesus coming again. And we can look forward to that the same way that they did. Knowing that one day, Jesus is coming. And all these people, and all these things that they've done, are put away. And he's going to come and he's going to rule in righteousness. He's going to be firm. He's going to make good judgments. But it's going to be a very different world. We look forward to that. So how would people kind of classify your walk? Which life are you more focused on? What has your concern more? Father, we thank you that we don't have to be concerned with the things going on in this life to the point that it gets, gets us worried, fearful, or anxious. But Father, we're focused and thinking about the world to come. Knowing that what we do here determines our place there. So we want to be faithful to your word, faithful to your promises, faithful to you. That what you have called us to do, we will do. Just as the writer of Hebrews here has listed so many different people, and each one having a different call. Each one here, we have a different call. But we need to exercise faith in the area of our call. In the area that you have said, this is your role here down on this earth. For David, it was a victor. For Samson, he was a deliverer. For Gideon, he was a deliverer. So many had different calls, but they exercised faith in that call. And even as we look at the life of David, there are other areas where he exercised great faith in but his call was in being a victor. And he brought victory to Israel. He defeated the enemies of God. Whatever our call is, we exercise faith in it. We operate in it. And I thank you, Father, that we can leave a good testimony behind for what we do in that call. Give you the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.